In this episode, I talk with Jessica about trauma, PTSD, and mental illness, the damage done when those issues are over-spiritualized, and how her experiences have informed the way she cares for those living with addiction. This is Through a Glass Darkly, the podcast about following Jesus while living with a mental illness. I first met Jessica as part of a missions team I was leading. The program was called Enlace, which when translated from Spanish means link, bond, connection. The purpose of the month-long trip was to connect high school students with communities in Guatemala, not so much so that they could do something for them, although there was a serving aspect to the trip, but so they could learn from them about everything from faith to the impact of globalization. Jessica was one of those high school students, and during the trip she stood out to me both because of her obvious love and affection for the kids we would meet as well as for her shared love for milkshakes from the Guatemalan ice cream store Sarita. We had a lot of milkshakes on that trip. In the years after that trip, I kept in touch with her, mostly through social media, as well as through a blog she was writing about her time at school preparing for overseas missions. In those blog posts, she wrote frankly about her struggles with her mental health, and at one point I reached out to her and we had a chat about faith and mental illness. And so, even though we hadn't spoken since that time, I reached out to her to see how she was doing and if she would be interested in being a guest on this podcast. I'm so grateful she agreed, and I know that what she shares is so important for anyone to hear, but especially for those who consider themselves a part of the church. Just a heads up, the following conversation touches on sexual abuse, substance use, and suicide. So thanks for, thanks for being a part of this. For sure. I was trying to remember how long ago it would have been that we went on that missions trip, but I guess 2011. Yeah. Yeah. It was actually funny. You contacted me and then my parents actually visited me with um, a USB with all the pictures from that trip. Oh, wow. And so I was like going through them, all the pictures of us at Sarita. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sarita. So good. Uh, so how, how did you actually get connected with that trip? I, I was just always looking like, since I was little, I wanted to be a missionary. And so I was just looking for opportunities. And then Megan, who I went on the trip with, um, we went to school together and we had kind of been searching together and then found, uh, that it was through MCC and our parents thought it was a reliable enough organization to go that young. So that's how it happened. So you said you kind of always wanted to be missionary. Uh, was your family yeah. like Christian, pretty religious? Was that just a part of your life? Yeah. Um, so when I was little, I grew up going to church, probably only until I was like eight or 10 years old and we stopped going. So it was something that I was introduced to, um, but then my family no longer was involved at all with it. So it was something that I chose to continue on my own. And I found a church that had a homeless shelter inside of it in St. Catherine's. And uh, I just kind of got involved there and found some community. And then my high school I went to was Christian as well. So I just had a lot of Christian people in my life. Wow. So you joined, you were helping out at the homeless shelter when you were like 10? Oh, no. Like once I was um, in high school. So I would have been like 14 when I started. Okay. But yeah, we stopped going to church when I was young. And then I kind of just sought it out on my own going to church with an older friend. She was a mentor. So she would bring me to church and uh, yeah. And then kind of just made connections with people and organizations and continued by myself with it. 
Would you say looking back, doing that kind of work, like, you know, with the homeless shelter and whatnot, was that connected in your mind with your faith or that was just something generally you thought that's a good idea? So sure, I'll do it. Um, Yeah, like since I was really little, I was just always wanting to help people. Missions was like a huge thing that was obviously uh, encouraged in the church and something that I was like, oh, that's something I really want to do. And then getting involved in the homeless shelter, it just felt like the right place for me. Um, I'd always wanted to help people less than like, I I grew up with a great family, a great home. Like my needs were always met, those kind of things. I just always had a passion for people. And then that was kind of the outlet that um, did end up connecting me more to my faith because it was in the church. So all of the connections I made were with Christian people. So you hear about this program through Mennonite Central Committee in Lasse. Uh, I was a leader with it and we go off for a month to Guatemala. Uh, what mm-hmm. was that like for you, for your faith? Yeah. And Lasse was, I think the start to any of like my, yeah, it was the first time I've gone overseas. Yeah. It was huge. It was a huge culture shock, but it like really made me feel like, yes, this is what I want to be doing. Um, and I got to visit my sponsor child when I was with him last day. And that was just like such an incredible experience because I'd been writing her for years and, um, it was just cool to like, see that it was a real thing and that it wasn't just going to some random person, (laughs) but, uh, yeah. So it really shaped my faith in the sense that like it encouraged that I wanted to keep doing overseas missions or at least pursue that path. And with my faith, yeah, I feel like I, I definitely became closer to God in my faith and being around like you and having all of our teammates and just being together for that long uh, was super encouraging because I didn't really have that at home, a community of faith. Um, So yeah, it definitely encouraged me to to continue with that lifestyle. We reconnected a couple years or a few years later, and I think Mm -hmm. you were a part of a discipleship program, it seemed like. Yes. So then... After I graduated high school, uh, I went on a program called Out of Town through Canadian Mennonite University. And it, yeah, it was a discipleship program. So that was a year long. Uh, it was based off of like two semesters for school, um, got a few university credits for it. And so the first half, I think the first four months or whatever the normal semester is, uh, was traveling Canada and kind of going to different Bible camps, uh, seeing how different people run programs. Um, we did a lot with uh, Indigenous people with the Anishinaabe community. Um, so that was really cool doing sweat lodges and that kind of stuff. Yeah, so that was like the first semester. And it was, oh, I can't even remember how many people. I think there was like almost 30 of us. And then we went home for Christmas. And then the next semester, I was in South Africa. And so that was kind of traveling all over South Africa from like Johannesburg to Cape Town and staying with different host families. It was a huge learning experience, not as much as like missions as you go to like do something. There was like times where we were helping out and stuff, but it was more learning and um, learning about apartheid. We got to meet with Desmond Tutu and that was just like mind blowing. And so it was, yeah, it was an incredible experience and just seeing the different cultures that were in South Africa itself. And then, yeah, that just kind of, again, like encouraged me that, oh, this is what I want to be doing and like learning about culture and going overseas. So, yeah, that's what I did kind of pre going to college. Okay, so you finished the program where you went to South Africa, then Mm -hmm. you enter into CBC and their intercultural program. And that, I think, was when you and I reconnected because you were providing some updates and things around what was going on in your life and with CBC mm-hmm. and, and whatnot. So do you want to talk a little bit about what, what was happening during that time? So yeah, so I moved uh, to BC after out of town to go to CBC. 
and wanted to do the intercultural programs for the option of doing the missions trips that were part of the program. And so, yeah, I'd gone there kind of fresh faced. I didn't know anyone. Uh, My mom dropped me off there and left. And then I was like, didn't know a single soul there. So it's a huge learning curve for me. But yeah, so I really loved it. But I had kind of been realizing for a while that my mental illness or wellness at the time, I guess, before diagnoses was creeping up on me. And I noticed it first when I was on out of town, I had a conversation with one of my mentors about it, uh, just realizing like something doesn't feel right. And yeah, so I had kind of just been something that I'd pushed to the side. And I was in my third year of college planning to go to Germany uh, through an MB mission trip to work with the refugees that had gone there. And that was supposed to be a full like year trip as well for my year of college. And uh, pretty quickly declined once I started kind of the training that I did. We had two months of training before we were sent out. And within those two months, uh, yeah, my mental health just declined uh, and I ended up in the psych ward and I did not go to Germany and I dropped out of school. So it was a big, um, a big flip for me. And uh, I'd say that's kind of the start of where I really started to like dig into what was going on. So for those two months where it really kind of deteriorated for the first Mm -hmm. time, it seems, did you have like an understanding of what was going on or it was just like, I just feel awful and I don't know how to even explain it. So I think I had kind of discovered it when I was on out of town and it was a lot of stuff that I wasn't really allowing myself to think about. Um, I experienced a lot of trauma in high school. Um, I was in a very abusive relationship and I kind of fled Ontario for that matter. And so I went on out of town, this program, just to get away. I started realizing I was dating someone on the program and it just brought out everything that I had been either thinking that wasn't a problem or just memories that I had completely pushed to the side. And so that was like the real point of like the wheels started spinning, like, oh no, like there's something wrong here. And having a conversation with my mentor about like, you know, what are the possibilities of what's going on? Um, So I'd kind of known in my head, like those things were going on. And I just had been told by a lot of Christians, like you just need community and prayer and like that will go away. And then, yeah, so on those two months, I had had an incident the summer prior to going to this um, where I had a sexual assault and that just triggered more for me where I was just kind of like at my breaking point. And I remember being, we were at like this, uh, what's it called? Like a retreat center for our training, the two months. And I remember saying to like the program leader, like, I am done pushing. Like, I think I need actual help. And I remember everyone telling me like, just push harder. You need to pray harder and push harder. And I just remember like really trying to advocate for myself saying like, I'm done pushing. Like I need like a doctor. Yeah. And they didn't see that. And so I ended up in the psych ward. (laughs) Wow. I'm I'm so sorry that happened. When I was thinking back on some of the communications, and I actually went back because I had the Facebook interaction that we had around, I don't know if it was like specifically at that time or maybe just before, but yeah, there seems to be such a struggle in you to try and figure out how the way that you're feeling and your mental health, how does that connect with Mm -hmm. this faith that you're a part of and Jesus you're trying to follow and you're getting ready for a missions trip? So Mm -hmm. how were you making sense of that? Yeah, I think at that point, I was kind of already in my head, like frustrated with the church and Christians as that like label, because of the 
constant frustration I had trying to make sense of it and trying to get actual help. But yeah, I, I have always had like a really personal and close relationship with God, just like as an individual. And so I didn't really have like, it didn't really change my faith in the sense of like going to the psych ward and that kind of stuff. Um, I think it, it just really made me lose hope in people and Christians and like the institution of church. And I was really confused as why I was a part of it anymore. And yeah, because I went to the psych ward at CBC, I couldn't continue with classes. So in, instead of, I was really open about it. And instead of getting help, they actually just made me pay a lot of money to drop out of class. And I was on my own after that. And so uh, it's been hard to make sense of faith because you don't really fit in if you have a mental illness in a, a faith environment, but that doesn't mean that I still wasn't searching for my faith. And so, I mean, at this point, I am completely disengaged from church and Christians. I don't any longer identify as a Christian, but yeah, I think I'm still ongoing trying to figure out my faith. And right now, like I've been really involved with indigenous studies, um, I've always had a connection to just having a passion for Indigenous teachings. So that's kind of been where it's led me. But I'm still trying to figure out my faith and what that looks like having a mental illness. Mm-hmm. How has your mental illness been since that point? And so you're in the psych ward and then you come out and don't go back to school and you're on your own. Yeah, it, it got a lot worse from there. I ended up going to treatment uh, at a Christian rehab program because I couldn't afford any of the actual treatments. So it was free, but you had to be involved in faith. And so I went to this treatment program for a full year. And a couple of times I was on a wait list beforehand. I had to, did try taking my life a couple of times um, and was kind of in and out the psych ward and that kind of stuff, just trying to hang on till somebody could help me. And so I was in that treatment center for a full year and it was very damaging I think the word would be I uh I wasn't allowed my phone when I was there and I wasn't allowed really contact with people and I always had to have a staff member like with me at all times and it felt very like almost a punishment for voluntarily going to a treatment center but I stayed there because I didn't have any options I didn't have I wasn't working I didn't have any money I didn't have anywhere to live So I, yeah, I I stuck it out. And then while I was in treatment, I came out as bisexual and they told me that I would have to leave if I said that. So I quickly backtracked and said like, just kidding. I'm straight. Like, please let me stay. I don't have anywhere to go. And so that was incredibly damaging to myself to have to deny myself for a year of like being authentic because that is something that's like so important to me. And then as well, I wasn't allowed to graduate unless I agreed with all of their faith statements. And so I pretty much had to put on a charade to get out of this program. Not, it did give me a lot of time to focus on what was going on because I had nothing to do and I wasn't allowed outside the front door. So I just like stare out the window all day. So it, it was beneficial in the sense that I had some time to really look at myself and the, I had counseling and that was awesome. There's a lot of great parts to that place, um, but also very damaging. So I kind of walked away with there thinking like, this sucked, but I've had some time to figure it out. And now like I get to choose what's right for me. So what did you, what did you end up choosing? How'd you move forward? Um, So originally I had found, um, I had to have housing set up before I left and I had to have 
uh, a mentor through a church set up before I left. So I had a lot of things that I kind of had to check these boxes um, that I knew in my mind I wasn't going to continue with, but I had to put them in place. So I ended up going back to a church and I found a Christian couple to live with. And pretty quickly within the first couple months of being out of treatment, I uh, stopped going to the church. I was just so, I felt so trapped by Christianity at that point. And with the couple I was living with, I, I love them dearly, but we were on totally different pages. Um, they were just coming out of addiction and I was too, and it was not a healthy mix. So I ended up actually being homeless for quite a while. I lived in my car until I could find a place to live. But yeah, I, I think that's kind of the point where I stopped going to church was after um, just the first couple months after rehab and realizing that, you know, people don't have your back unless you're checking A, B, and C off. And then I just kind of roughed it alone for a bit. And that was hard, but incredibly freeing for me. I can't even imagine after all those kind of hoops that you had to drum through to be the person that they needed you to be so that you could get help. I know you said you're still in the process of figuring it out. Mm -hmm. All these things are happening to you. And obviously, you know, the Christian element is, is putting so much pressure and, and like you said, trapping you in, Mm -hmm. were you able to separate Christians and some of their, you know, beliefs that they really wanted you to hold to? And like you were saying, like your personal relationship with God, or did Mm -hmm. the way that they were treating you just throw everything into, into confusion and you, you had no idea how to even understand it. Yeah. There was a while where I guess like all of those things happened. So yeah, I was pretty aware that I was just done with people and Christian people and like the church and I didn't feel like angry with God or like upset. Like I was just kind of like in my head, like, all right, like me and God are going to get out of here then. Like we're just going to move on. Yeah. So there was a time where I was still actively just staying connected with God, you know, just talking, praying, reading the Bible, those kind of things. And then it got to a point where I was just like, really trying to understand theology and it just didn't make sense anymore to me. And so I, I kind of came to a conclusion that, you know, I don't think the Bible is necessary, like necessarily like all these words that I've learned in school, God breathed and like absolutely accurate to the T, you know, either you believe all of it or you don't. And so, and I just realized, you know, this doesn't make any sense to me and I'm not going to keep trying to live my life based off of a book because I'm afraid of going to hell. And that was a reality for a long time for me is that I'm going to go to hell and like being someone who is constantly suicidal and then being like, okay, if I do this, like, this is a bad decision, but like your brain is so fixated on when I'm in my depressive episodes on suicide. And so it was a very complex thing for me of being scared all the time. Um, and it took a couple of years to just realize, like, I get to choose what I believe and I get to choose what I think is going to happen down the road. And I don't have to hold to a belief that, you know, hell is the end road for me because I've screwed this up. And so after I kind of really just left theology completely and decided that even though Christians were telling me you can't have a relationship with God without church and the Bible, that um, I was going to see, take time to just see what I believed. And, and I think now when I think of the word God, it's kind of triggering because I think of an old white man and, And a lot of my trauma came from men in the church. So yeah, it took me a long time to just, I changed words I used to things like creator. I realized that the biggest thing that kept me sober was when I started dairy farming. 
and uh, cows literally like saved my life. And I have a huge tattoo of a cow. <laughs> yeah. And so, and just being outside and I just started hiking by myself and just like enjoying BC. And then I don't know what even you would call my faith right now, but when I'm outside, I talk to, to something. <laughs> I talk right. to whatever you want to call it. And like, I still believe in like having a soul and like just the goodness in people, but I just don't hold to theology anymore. And like, I feel like all that anxiety I was holding has really gone away since I've just separated completely from anything that's like labeled Christian. Right. I mean, hearing your story, I'm sure the question I'm going to ask you has thousand answers and maybe one very <laughs> obvious one. But when you reflect on that time and all the stuff that you know you went through and you were experiencing and then that Christians seemingly made worse, what do you think would have been helpful for you? Like what, looking back, what were you actually looking for? that maybe they could have provided. Yeah, I think I was just looking for acceptance. And I remember people saying, you know, like, we don't necessarily have to accept you, like, because I was very adamant and out with who I was at that point, like, I was really tired of trying to tiptoe around people. And I was very forward with the fact that I'm bisexual. Part of having PTSD is I smoke a lot of weed, and I don't care, like, about what people think about that. And I was very open about it. And the it was just a lot of judgment and mean heartedness that came out of people when they heard those things. And instead of being able to see me for who I am and what's working for me, what is keeping me alive, that wasn't important. What's important was, are you following God's will, which is up to whoever decides to decipher it however they want. And so it felt very manipulative. And all I wanted was for people to like rally alongside me to help me figure out what was best for me. And that was never an option. It was, I was to lay myself down and for God and what was best for God. And yeah, it was really confusing, but I think if I would have just had total acceptance without people trying to change me all the time or, you know, question everything and saying that prayer heals everything and you know, it doesn't heal brain chemistry. It doesn't heal childhood trauma and you need to put the work in and you need professional help. And that was never an option. And I had to scramble to get myself on wait lists to see a psychiatrist, to see someone who could prescribe me meds. And yeah, it was just, a, it was, I was alone figuring out all of this for years. And I think it would have been nice to have someone walk alongside me without trying to make me a better Christian. And right. so eventually I just told all my Christian friends, I'm not a Christian, so stop expecting things from me. And then I lost my entire community. And yeah, I've uh, just been kicking it with my partner for three years now and our dog. And we are actively trying to find ways to make friends that aren't Christians, which proves to be very hard when you don't just have like a Bible study to go to or something. Uh, my partner is also not a Christian anymore, but he went to YWAM and started a church. Like he was very involved in Christianity as well. So yeah, both of us have a lot of the similar feelings of kind of being abandoned by people because we're not who they want us to be. Thanks for sharing. That's, yeah. uh, that's horrific, really. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So you mentioned cows saved your life, dairy farming. Yeah. <laughs> Could you talk more about how did, how did dairy farming save your life? Yeah. Yeah. So once I finished the treatment and I was kind of living with the couple, I got a job at a coffee shop and it was just so boring. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I'm just sitting here thinking about everything that's wrong with my life. 
And I thought, okay, I've always loved animals. Like since I was little, I always had this like struggle in my mind. So I want to work with people, but I want to like be a vet. Like how do I combine those? So I live in Abbotsford and there's just dairy farms everywhere. And so I thought, you know, maybe I'll call a couple of farmers, explain that I have no dairy farm experience, but that I really want to try. And so the one farm, they hired me as a calf feeder. And I was like, how is this a job like feeding baby cows? Like, this is amazing. Right. And so that was kind of the start of like a huge change in me. It was a very physical job, very fast paced, early mornings, like lots of heavy lifting. And it, it just fit me for who I am. And yeah, I adored it. And I think that the farmers that hired me and I've worked at different dairy farms as well. I don't think any of them were aware of what I was going through or the impact that that job had on me, but I don't think I would be in the same position I am today. I think I would have continued on in addiction. I think I would have um, been back in the psych board. And so I had a responsibility at 3 a.m. every time, you know, I got to get up every day. I can't stay up all night doing whatever I'm doing. And so that was like a huge shift for me, just having that responsibility and then also just spending time with cows. Like I love baby cows, but the big ones, they're just like big dogs. And it was so healing just to like walk into work every day and you just have like all these cows run up to you. And like, just, it felt like a, a community for me because I didn't have anyone. And I continued dairy farming for five years and I loved it. And yeah, it, it just kept me going. And then when I met my current partner, Garrett, we moved to a farm and we started a 15 acre hobby farm and it was so much fun. Uh, and it did not work out how we planned. So we, we moved back to Abbotsford because it was very expensive. Yes. <laughs> so it did not work out, but it was fun. But yeah. And so I've kind of like had this dream now at some point, whenever the housing crisis ends to have land and have my own therapy farm, uh, for people with just different types of livestock. Um, I had pot belly pigs for a while and they were like my best friends. <laughs> and yeah, I think you can connect to animals in a way that you don't need to explain yourself. You don't need to talk about anything. You can just sit and, uh, it's yeah, it's super healing. And I also volunteer at a equine therapy place as well and just grooming the horses and stuff is healing for me and that's therapy for me even though I'm just a volunteer there but yeah so kind of like my my self-care plan moving forward has always been like I have to do something with animals once a week um it's just so grounding and uh, my partner and I have an English mastiff so he's a huge guy and that also has just been like having the responsibility of walking him every day like okay like I'm in a depressive episode but I still have to walk my dog and so just things like that, having like a life to care for. And it's just been, yeah, essential to me trying to figure out going forward. I stopped dairy farming about six months ago now to switch into social services um, because I slowly in school for social work. And now I'm on a mental health leave. <laughs> so we're figuring that out. <laughs> but who knows? I might go back to dairy farming if I need to. Right. I think you said you're a harm reduction worker. Yeah. So it's an organization that works with both youth and street community. Um, so there's harm reduction, facilitation, um, a lot of services they offer in the community. But yeah, there wasn't a ton of support for me as a staff member. And I realized very quickly, you know, this isn't going to be a, a good fit for me. And so it was really easy to, you know, just say that and talk about how I was struggling and my mental illness and 
you know, I got a paid leave and it was so easy. And so it's just been so amazing, like how there are people out there who understand mental illness. And for me, it was like, for the longest time, I thought no one gets this, but it was just because I was in the wrong community. And so, yeah, so it's been really different ever since I've involved myself in the social services world. Do you find the work is at all, I I use the word triggering, but Mm -hmm. do you find that the work, does it make your mental health better in some respects, but then worse in others? Or is it just completely independent of that? Yeah, it's, it's odd. So it's definitely triggering. There's things that people have said where I've just been like, all right, my brain has shut down. Like there's no going back. And yeah, so this job really helped me to feel out like, where am I at in my like recovery? Where am I at with trauma? And yeah, it's hard. And so I think going to counseling and like having my partner has been super important, but I've realized I need a lot of support. I need staff to be able to debrief that with, and that really wasn't an option this job. And so I realized, yeah, this is too much for me to take on. But then outside of work, my partner and I have a guest room we use as like a transition room. So we have different people stay who are trying to get help. And we have someone moving in next month that's homeless and we're going to kind of try and see what they need and get them connected. And so it's something that I do in my personal time that I really want to be helping people, but I don't know. I think it's hard to do it under an organization necessarily. And so we've been just trying to figure out, you know, maybe I do get some land and start my own company, my own organization but that's something that my partner and I are very passionate about is giving people opportunity, regardless if they're using whatever their situation is, you know, you don't need a, to be sober for housing. Um, everyone deserves somewhere to sleep and something to eat. And uh, I think that's, that's really where like my heart is right now. And so I have no idea what I'm doing for work. I don't know if I'm going to take a social service job, if I'm just going to go work on a dairy farm, but it's regardless, that's, yeah, housing is just so important to me. And I think because I was homeless for a bit and it was really scary and confusing and, you know, I didn't get a lot of help with anything and I've really had to fight tooth and nail to just kind of stay alive at times, you know, when you're that suicidal. And so now when I see people struggling with certain things, it's just hits home. And I think I have the space to do this. I have the capacity to do this. So yeah, even though I'm on a mental health leave from work, I'm like actively still doing stuff outside of that. So yeah, I'm not really sure where that's going to go, but. <laughs> that's incredible. How do you meet the people that end up coming into your, your room, your transition room? Um, so, so far they've just been people I've known like through clients through my organization. Um, the organization is so rad in the sense that they don't have like professional boundaries. Like some ways that I've met people is just smoking weed with them. And that's just like such a cultural thing. And just to hang out and it's, it's different than approaching it as like a social service worker or like someone who's, I guess there's like an authority and yeah, just being able on my own time, I know where certain camps are and I can go by and just see how people are doing. And then, yeah, if I see immediate, if someone needs immediate housing or something like that's always an option, especially going into the cold weather. But yeah, now that I've been in Abbey for a while, I know kind of where the main hubs are and I'm a lot of organizations. So yeah, I think it's, it's easier for me to do it on my own than as a social service worker, because there's so many boundaries with being in a professional job. Mm-hmm. Yes. I know. That's why when you said 
you know, you met them, some of them were clients or you met them through mm-hmm. your workout. In my head, I was like, oh my gosh, what, <laughs> what organization is letting you do that? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they have a really hands-off approach. Like if you're not working, I don't care what you do kind of thing. So right. it gave me a lot of freedom to just, you know, do what I thought was necessary. And if it turned out to be a really big mess, which it has multiple times, I've just been like, okay, I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> right. Um, so you mentioned being homeless for quite a while. How did you mm-hmm. exit homelessness? Yeah. So I was lucky because I had my car. I, yeah. So I slept in my car while I was dairy farming. Um, I kind of just like wake up in my pajamas and go to work and it worked well. Um, I showered at community centers, that kind of stuff. But yeah, I think there was so much shame around it at the time. I didn't tell my parents, I didn't tell anyone. And I think, you know, if I would have told someone, they they probably would have sent me money or like helped me out somehow. But I was just in such a place of like, I just like left treatment and now I have nowhere to live. Like I screwed this up again. And like, there's just a lot of shame of like, this is my fault. And so, yeah, it was hard, but it felt like something that I had to keep a secret and just kind of keep going on with my life. Like there wasn't an option to stop working or yeah, I didn't want to go to a shelter. Like I, I felt so ashamed of that, but yeah, so it, it was hard for a while. I, I parked at like, um, it was like a big plaza, with like a tin in it and stuff. And yeah, it, it was weird. It was definitely uncomfortable and scary. And I just kept applying for housing until I got on a list for one and then waited it out until I got housing. But yeah, now I really understand like the shame that's behind it, even though I have like a lot of people that I could have contacted. Um, I was just kind of at the place where like, I have been such a mess for so long, like people are getting tired of it. And that's kind of the narrative that was going through my head. Like how many years is this going to last? Like, and having an experience of, of Christians leaving me because I wasn't changing. Um, I had a lot of friends who said, oh, we thought you'd be better after treatment. This is too much. And I, they left. And uh, it was heartbreaking. And I have, I think, two close friends right now that, you know, accept me for who I am. And a lot of them are in, the one of them is in recovery as well. And so she's able to relate to all of the things we've been through. And she's been homeless as well. And there's a lot of people that have been homeless that you wouldn't suspect mm-hmm. and due to the stigma and the shame around it, people don't access help. And so now I'm so much more understanding when I see someone sleeping outside and they don't want to go to the shelter or they don't want to ask people for help. It's like, yeah, I, I understand why you feel like a burden 24 seven. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned shame, the shame around homelessness and how that kept you silent. Mm-hmm. Has, has shame been a major component of your mental illness? Cause I know with depression, that's mm-hmm. one of the big things. Like you feel bad that you feel so bad or you feel mm-hmm. bad about yourself. And so it kind of drives you into isolation. So what has been your experience Definitely. with that? Yeah, I think, yeah, shame has been a huge piece, especially trying to figure out amidst Christianity, um, the shame of talking about sexual assault. Like I felt like I couldn't talk about that because people weren't prepared for it or didn't want to talk about it. And a lot of it happened in the church. And so there was a lot of me just carrying that for years of trying to, okay, I guess this isn't a big deal. I'm just going to deal with it. And um, the more it happened, the more that I realized like this is ruining my life. So I like slowly started to speak out about it and it was really difficult. And the reactions of people and the amount of times people said, why'd you put yourself in that situation? Yeah. In my experience, Christians are horrible with that. And uh, 
so there's so much shame around that and so much blame that came from people and that I, I really internalized that of like, yeah, why did I do that? And it's like, mm-hmm. well, when you're not in your right mind and you're using substances, you know, that's, it's something that people don't understand unless they've had an addiction. And I guess just this narrative of not being worthy, it was a huge piece as well for me. But yeah, so it was a lot of trying to slowly break down the shame of just starting to talk about it. And then I kind of got to a place where I was like, I'm so done with everyone's opinions that I just, I'm just going to live how I live. And if there's no one walking with me, that's okay. And that's when I truly found like the freedom to fully talk about things and, you know, just let the judgments roll off. Like I no longer was kind of looking for validation from Christians. I think I was doing that for a long time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think shame is still something I deal with because I, I still actively have a mental illness, you know, feeling like a failure when you're in bed for a week or like right now having a bit of a relapse with mental illness and having to take time off and adjust medication and try and figure out what is not working right now and that it's an ongoing thing. And that I will probably have my mental illness for the rest of my life is something that is hard to, yeah, just talk about with people because they're expecting you to get better. And they're expecting you to do better and try harder. And that's just not the reality. So, yeah, that's something that I've, I've thought about a lot, like still being in the church and still Mm -hmm. calling myself a Christian, but this idea of how closely it seems Christianity is often tied to changing behaviors. Right. And Mm -hmm. so what happens if, you know, like you do have a mental illness and those things are just not going to go away or there are, mm-hmm. there's always going to be times maybe where you, you relapse and you, you go into behaviors or situations that, you know, normally you wouldn't do, but yeah, that's just the reality of, of your mental illness. Right. And what does, what does even grace look like um, yeah. in a place like that? So I feel like it's a sign of, of your healing though, that you were able to get to the point where you weren't looking for validation anymore, mm-hmm. where you could just yeah. say like, no, this is what, like, this is what happened. I don't need you to say that it was bad or whatever you're going to say. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I know that it was. So that's good. I'm, I'm glad. I mean, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm so sorry about so much of, <laughs> yeah. of what you're saying, but I'm glad you had that for yourself mm-hmm. at least. You've mentioned addictions a few times. For you, is your addiction closely connected to your mental health and, and trauma? Yeah. So I didn't even realize at first that I was coping, um, mainly with alcohol was a huge issue for me. I was using like weed as a coping to an extreme level. Yeah. And I've actually been like a closet drinker since I was in grade 10, I think. And I didn't even, it was like parts of my brain were just blocking that off. Um, and it was definitely a way of coping, um, just not being able to handle the thoughts in my head or thinking about memories. And because I hadn't even addressed with anyone what was happening, I couldn't even put a name to PTSD. I couldn't put a name to depression or anything like that. And then it got worse as I got older and obviously living on my own and stuff like that. You have your ample opportunity to do that without judgment. So um, yeah, that became a huge binge, binge drinking when like I couldn't handle a thought or a memory or I had a bad day. It was something that was so protective for me, I guess. And when I look back at it, I'm, I'm grateful for my relationship with addiction because it was, I think the only way I got through, I don't think I would have, would be here today without using alcohol. And so I've had a lot of grace for myself in the fact that 
you know, that was my way of surviving, you know, when I was 15, 16, not knowing what to do. And when I was in treatment, I had a really, I think it took me like the whole year to have a full like breakup with my relationship with alcohol because it was something that I panicked that I didn't need. Like if I, if I didn't have access to it, it was a panic. And I remember going to treatment and they said like, oh, you have to be sober. And that was just not an option for me. And so I binge drank the night before. And I remember just going into withdrawal when I went into treatment thinking like, oh shit, like I don't have alcohol for the next year. Like it was a full, like it was really hard to deal with, um, not having something to stop my thoughts. And so, yeah, alcohol has been something that I've continued have, to have relapses with binge drinking as situations have come up. And I've just gotten to the place where, you know, I feel like this is my only option right now. And so, but I've gotten to a place where I've been able to really appreciate um, marijuana and, and smoking because it really helps with sleeping for me. Um, with my PTSD at nighttime and knowing that, you know, I can go to this instead of going to an extreme of binge drinking, which put me in a lot of unfortunate situations as well. But yeah, I would say they're closely tied to just coping with trauma. Yeah. I feel like that's something that isn't well known, certainly within Mm -hmm. Christian circles, but I think even just within society, the role that addiction actually does play for Mm -hmm. people. So oftentimes you know, you're talking to somebody and you're talking to them about sobriety, but for them, that's, that is the thing that is keeping them alive as strange as it seems. Mm-hmm. Right. And so definitely you can't just take something away. You have to, yeah. you have to give them something, you know, you have to give them tools. You have to give them something that they can put that will play the same role in their life, which is really difficult. Definitely. Yeah. And I went to AA for a long time and celebrate recovery. And I tried the, the chip program. Um, and it puts so much pressure on being sober that every night after I would just binge drink. And I got to a place where I remember someone saying to me, you don't have to be sober. Like, it's not a bad thing to use substances. Everyone uses substances. You know, you use coffee, whatever it is, you smoke cigarettes and that substances play such a unique and important role in people's lives. And so that's really changed my thinking. And especially when I have people living here, like I say to them, use what you're using. I'm not asking you if you want to use heroin, that's your choice. It's your body. And I'm here to support you in whatever way I can. And I'm not expecting you to stop using because that's often people's response is to get you sober, but that's not really any of my business for someone else. And yeah, I think that's something that's been really helpful for me is that I don't put this pressure of like, I have to be sober. It's like actually smoking weed helps me. So I'm going to keep doing that, even though I'm no longer allowed to go to celebrate recovery if I'm using weed. So yeah, I think there's definitely been like a shift in my mind of sobriety is something that is very important to Christianity. Mm -hmm. So you've mentioned smoking weed and obviously your whole experience with the dairy farms. What other things have you put in your life to be healthy? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, big thing for me has been kickboxing as well. Yeah, I got to a place where I've been in counseling for years now. And as you move through trauma, it's really difficult to contain it when you bring up something and you want to work through it, you have to go so slowly because it can be so overwhelming and keep you from functioning in daily life. And so what has been so helpful for me is going to kickboxing and just like physically getting my anger or frustration out and being able to leave it there. And so it's not so much as something I do for exercise, but as like, I can like feel like my arms tingling and my hands tingling when I'm building up with like anger or memories. And I just, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to kickboxing then. And then that's really helped me with 
you know, not going down a spiral or not going to use alcohol or something like that. So yeah, the physical aspect of kickboxing has been really helpful for drunk. And from the reading that I've done and counseling and things like that, it's, it's interesting too, how they talk about how trauma is stored in the body, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. body memories. And so this idea of like, you can't, you can't just talk it out. It's actually stored in you. And so you have to do things that are relieving that memory through your body. So it sounds like Mm -hmm. kickboxing is, is the thing that does that for you. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you. I, uh, I know this wasn't easy stuff to talk about, but I really appreciate Mm -hmm. it and your honesty and yeah, I, I hope that your healing continues and that you you. continue to find ways to live the life that that you want Mm -hmm. thank you so much for the opportunity no problem that's our show for today special thanks to mark calvitis for the podcast cover art this podcast deals with some pretty serious topics if you're struggling with your mental health or are thinking about suicide please reach out to a trusted friend or some other person you know loves and cares for you there are also professional supports available please go online and visit Crisis Services Canada to find the distress centers and crisis organizations nearest you, or call the Canada Suicide Prevention Service at 1-833-456-4566. They're available to talk 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If you're under 29, the Kids Help Phone has professional counselors available to provide confidential and anonymous care. Call them toll-free at 1-800-668-6868 or text the word CONNECT, C-O-N-N-E-C-T, to 686868. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestion about today's or any other episode, please email podcastdarkly21 at gmail.com. If you appreciate and enjoy this podcast, please subscribe or give it a rating on whichever podcast app you use, since apparently that makes it more likely other people will find it. Finally, because it's always good to end with a blessing, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. As always, thanks for listening.